Hey guys, here's something new we'd like to try. We'd like to learn a little bit more about our podcast listeners in order to have better conversations and just find out exactly what you're interested in listening to. And as a reward, we'll give you your own pair of boxes and lined socks, which are very soft and cozy, by the way. I wear them all the time. Just go to the website custom.sockclub.com slash IEX and fill out a very short survey and get your own pair of socks mailed straight to you while supplies last. And they're also free. Again, it's custom.sockclub.com slash IEX. Also, when you do get your lovely socks, tag us in your sock selfies on Twitter and Instagram at IEX. Thanks, guys, and thanks, as always, for listening. Welcome, everybody, to the latest episode of Boxes and Lines. Boxes and Lines. I have to let them do that each yep. and every time. Today, I'm very happy to welcome to the podcast, still at home, uh, Scott Baugus, a friend of John Ramsey's, a friend of our conference that we run annually now. And I thought, you know, like we always do, we'd sort of kick it off with some personal stuff. Word is, Scott, that you were formerly an electrical engineer. Then you worked at the SEC in uh, the DIRA department, and now you are a uh, professor at, uh, what is it, Hook'em Horns is Texas? Hook'em Horns, yes. I was going <laughs> to okay. lead him in, a, uh, in the Texas fight song, but yeah. I'll, I'll lead that. I'll leave that for the next one. John Ramsey is a native of Texas, as many mm-hmm. people might not know, but he always turns to me and goes, Hook'em Horns, and mm-hmm. now you're wearing a horns yeah. shirt, <laughs> collared mm-hmm. shirt. Anyway, I thought I'd ask, so you, you, you started out your career as an as electrical engineer. How did you get over into the, like the finance side of things? Like most things in life, you have accidents and you make changes. But uh, <laughs> I spent uh, six years working in high tech as an engineer. My background was semiconductor device physics. It turns out, in hindsight, I wasn't really a particularly motivated engineer. And after reading some Scott Adams cartoons, I realized I probably was better suited to be a manager. So I enrolled in an MBA program. And my epiphany moment came when I took my first finance class and I just couldn't get enough of it. And I became one of those annoying students that every other student hates because they arrived (laughs) at class overprepared and zealous for a faster pace. And Mm -hmm. my first instructor, (laughs) I cared. (laughs) Exactly. I I thought it was interesting. Uh, The instructor I had, Ultimately, after a year, convinced me to get a PhD. Up until then, I wasn't really even sure what a PhD was or why you would get one. <laughs> and uh, at the end of the day, I learned that uh, people who get them are those that have a curious mind and want to be at and understand the frontier of knowledge. So that was uh, the basis for my switch. It helped that my former boss's boss, when I was in high tech, uh, decided I was too valuable to be in the business unit and said you had to stay as an engineer. And so that helped push me out the door and decided to quit and start the PhD program. And then how did you wind up at the SEC? You were, I think you were already there when I rejoined in 2010, but I'm not sure. Yeah, that's right. So another accident, my first faculty appointment was at Texas Tech University. And I was studying at the time corporate governance issues, dual class firms and voting control and rights. And uh, I realized after a couple of years that I didn't have the requisite institutional knowledge to be really good at my research. So I wrote the SEC a letter and said, can I come for a year as a visiting scholar? And that was back in 2007. So I arrived right when the financial crisis hit. And it was such an interesting time that 
I gave up my tenure track position just to maintain a front row seat to see how the reform unraveled. Wow, that's a, like that, that's like a big sacrifice to make too. Yeah, yeah. And were you always in the Dira department at the SEC, or? And then I'd also like you, if you would not mind explaining, like a lot of people know trading and markets and enforcement, but might not know what Dira D E R A stands for. And, or and even I, I do know what it stands for, but I'll let Scott. Fill in the gaps. Let's got the pro answer. Yeah. So the economic and risk analysis division, I started off in a predecessor office. It used to be called the Office of Economic Analysis. Then after the financial crisis, they figured it needed to be more than that. And so they merged it with the risk assessment office, interactive data office, and the three offices together, I guess, made a division. Started off as risk strategy and financial innovation. That was the name of the division that uh, Chairman Shapiro gave it. Nobody really knew what that name meant. So when Mary Jo showed up, they named it something a little more simply, which was just economic and risk analysis. Uh, happy to explain what it does, at least what I think it does. Yeah, no, that'd be great. Please do. So the most of the human capital in that division are quants or academics, former academics, people who uh, have engaged in research, have an interest in research. And they use that skill set for any number of things. The bread and butter is economic analysis and policy. It's congressionally mandated that every time a new rule is passed that there's a cost-benefit analysis, actually an ECCF for efficiency, capital formation, and competition analysis. And the SEC voluntarily adds to that a cost-benefit analysis because if they didn't, Congress probably would make them do it mandatorily. Uh, so that's the bread and butter. Every uh, new rule has to have that type of analysis. But after the financial crisis, they expanded the role of economists in doing litigation support, so helping division of enforcement uh, uncover fraud, uh, help understand what damages are, identify potential misconduct like cherry picking, momentum ignition, insider trading, and, and bring those cases and serve as expert witnesses. And the third area is the newest area, and that's the uh, risk assessment and understanding where there might be emerging market risks, helping to support uh, the SEC's engagement with organizations like the Financial Stability Board or FSOC. And a lot of that is uh, more forward-looking type work and looking for issues that aren't quite well-known or understood before they become uh, du jour. Nice. John, I don't think you could have done such a good description. Not a chance. Well, I, you know... I... Don't sell me short, Ronan. I mean, I could have, I could have done just fine. But what I did want to ask is, as Ronan said, we did overlap at the SEC and we, we interacted on a variety of things. One thing that sticks out for me is the tick pilot. So as some folks may remember, this tick pilot was sort of mandated at the point of a gun. We at the SEC were required to do this thing, which expanded the minimum bid offer spread to five cents for a group of lower cap stocks. And the idea, uh, I guess the hope really, was that by doing that, it would create more trading in these stocks and generate more liquidity. Yeah, I have to say, when I was there, it felt like kind of a dopey idea to me. It felt like we were kind of being required to do it. What was your attitude about that pilot at the time that, that you guys were focused on? Because we never really answer, talked just- about this. Just one, one clarifying thing I wanted to say, because uh, a lot of people who listen to this podcast don't know the minutiae of uh, trading. So just so people out there are aware of like the minimum increment is a penny currently and what they were doing. So bid offer is penny apart. Part of this pilot was ensuring 
that in certain names, that minimum increment had to be at least five cents. And the thought then was by making it wider, there'd be more people at those wider bands, meaning more liquidity and more volume to trade. That, that was the theory. But just to right. explain that like a little easier. And then, Scott, if you wouldn't mind, please answering John's question. <laughs> Sorry to put in. Yeah. No, that's, yeah. a, that's a good uh, preview. And you know, the tick pilot was, from an economist view, pretty puzzling because market dynamics had changed significantly in the idea that mom and pop brokers, broker dealers were going to be uh, making markets, I think, had long evacuated the minds of most people understood markets. Uh, nevertheless, it was one of the popular ideas that I uh, thought would revive the prospects, particularly for smaller companies to get smaller broker dealers to make markets in them. I think most of the academics at the time thought that we would find nothing. And I think most of the research uh, today has shown that it, it doesn't really make a difference and it shouldn't be all that surprising. I should say that I'm a huge fan of pilots and market structure. It's one of the few areas the SEC is willing to borrow from medicine and, you know, create randomized control trials to understand what market effects are. Now, some of that may, may be a little bit threatened uh, with some of the, you know, current uh, going on in uh, uh, litigation, but it is one of the best ways to understand whether uh, a reform could or might work. And so to the extent that I didn't think the tick pilot would amount to much, I was still a fan of the idea of running a pilot to, you know, show one way or the other that it did or didn't matter. And, and I think at the time, I think there were a lot of people who thought if you were going to do a tick pilot, one thing that would be interesting to look at is for the most liquid names, if you tested the shrinking the minimum, so as Ronan said, minimum increment now is one penny, but for certain stocks, if you allow them to trade sort of within that minimum spread, that might be interesting. At the time, I remember thinking it may be worth doing a pilot, but I don't know that this is the one you would really want to do. Did you have any thoughts about that? Yeah. I mean, if you got four economists in a room to decide what the right pilot would be, you get four <laughs> different answers. So yeah. um, it, it's hard to say at the end of the day, I remember being a little bit frustrated and thinking it's taking so long to get this off the ground, just make a decision and go with it. And yep. it, it's yeah. more costly to lose time than it is to have it imperfectly done. Yeah, absolutely. So really quick, before we go full market structure, I just was curious. You, so you left the DIRA and now you're a you know, professor. What do you, what do you teach and what are students like interested in? Like it's, do you go into market microstructure or how like detailed is this type of stuff? I'm just curious at that level. So I teach two classes. Uh, one is uh, in corporate finance. That's what I you know, started off my career doing research in. And the other is a security market policy class, which is, which I'm teaching for the second time this semester and really turned into a, a market events class. Whatever the current topic is, we break it down and discuss the issues, you know, whether it's you know, the consolidated audit trail or um, regulation best interest. You know, from my perspective as an economist, you can break down any problem into its core economic elements. And, you know, teaching a student how to take a complicated problem and break into core economic elements and understand it, that's what I like to do. So for me, it's less the topic and more the process. That said, market structure has turned in, I think it is as much engineering as it is economics now. Yep. It is so technical, like what market structure was when I first arrived at the commission is nothing like what it is today. And so it requires 
a certain skill set that some students, I think, struggle to get up to speed on because they're not an engineer. Do, do you like teaching? Because I think there are a lot of there are a lot of academics that mainly really just want to focus on researching and publishing, and others that kind of enjoy teaching. Do where do you fall? I I do like teaching, maybe for different reasons than others. But even when I was at the commission, I taught for nine years at George Washington University. Oh, and cool. for me, if if you can't explain in plain English to students how markets work, then you can't do a good job at research. And so I think it's short-sighted researchers who discount teaching because they're actually better researchers if they get in the classroom and explain stuff, particularly to undergraduates who've seen markets for the first time. And it is a challenge, and I I recognize it again uh, coming back to UT, at trying to explain a concept to somebody who's never heard of it before really makes you a better researcher. That's a very perspicacious point. I don't even know what Thank that you. means, but I oh, think well, it's I know. Great, that's why I used it, Ron. That's why I knew that. words that you don't know. I know. No. I do think it's a, it's a great point because when you unlock all of this stuff, it's not super complicated, but it's very complicated to get in and to just sort of explain to people at a very base level and have undergrads understand it. I, I have to imagine that's pretty difficult. Kind of, it's almost like a puzzle. I think we probably need more people like you working on Wall Street training the rest of us who work here. Because like you said, many of us grew up in the industry over the past 10 years, and it is completely different now than it was 10 years ago. Even Anyway, we, we actually had a question for you, and I'm not sure if you continued on this research, but uh, we saw it a few months ago, and we thought it was fantastic. And it was, uh, I think you called it overnight pessimism and you, in the COVID crisis. And you, you've done something around like, post close till the first five through the first five minutes of the the following trading day the amount of price move is that something you can you can tell us about has it persisted obviously it's probably much more aggressive in march when things were going more haywire than today but i would imagine still today with the volatility there's some impact there yeah so the the backstory there was you know having been at the commission and through the last crisis, I was, I was pretty dismayed that there was a short sale ban. I mean, we spent a lot of time talking about that in 08. And, you know, the day before the ban, economists made their last ditch effort pitch to say, don't ban them. But, you know, the political process took over and, and there was a ban. And I think we learned for that is that it was a mistake in just about every dimension. And one important dimension that was that the convertible bar, bond arbitrage was killed because you needed to shorten the securities when market prices went up to maintain your equity hedge. And so that means every convertible bond arb hedge fund out there stopped buying convertible bonds, which meant the last source of funding for banks was gone. So we learned a lot. And after the COVID crisis uh, began, I assumed, fortunately incorrectly, that we would go down that path again, that despite uh, best intentions, politicians would go ahead and shut our markets, close them down, put in bands or do draconian things that seem right to a layperson. If you prevent a short sale, uh, selling a security that you don't own, then that's going to keep prices from falling. It doesn't work that way, but in, in trying to do a very small part in combating that, that perception, I wrote a few articles and posted them. One of them was on why markets should stay open. And I, I try to back all of my writings up with academic evidence. And in this case, I was trying to find a reason to show how volatility might go up if you shorten the trading day. It's something that Treasury Secretary Mnuchin said he would, con- he would contemplate. 
And you know, I, my intuition was, well, that's going to be bad for markets. It'll be more trading in a shorter period of time. And so I went to the literature and I found this paper written back in 2008 that showed almost all the S&P 500 returns, positive returns or gains that occurred overnight. And so I said, huh, I wonder if that's the same thing right now. And it turned out to be just the opposite. So all the losses were occurring overnight, which I think supported the hypothesis that the price discovery was occurring off hours. And all of the price movements were taking place in the first five minutes of the day. And you can envision everybody overnight loading up their algorithms to you know, make their bets in a particular direction. It gets all resolved in the first few minutes. In the rest of the day, you know, at the height of the crisis, if you had just traded the market long the rest of the day, you would have actually been up 5% when the market was down 30%. Wow, oh, I see. So, oh, that, that's really interesting. So market closed at 4 o'clock from 4 p.m. on a Monday to a 9.35 a.m. on a Tuesday. It's dropping 30%. And then the remainder of the trading day, 9.35 to 4, it's going up. How much did you say? I think at one time it was up 5%. Okay. You know, when the market the market was down twenty five or thirty percent. Yeah. That's, That's interesting. interesting. And is that what what to what do you attribute that? I think uh, well, so my broader concerns with the market when we talk a little bit about too is algorithmic trading. Yeah. And I think what happens during the day it just goes to show that humans don't really trade anymore or make uh, decisions. And overnight, they calibrate their models, incorporate information, yep. and they pull the trigger and the market open, and then everything settles, right? So the market clears in the first few minutes, you reach a new equilibrium, and the rest of the day is just static trading. Makes a lot of sense. Also, it's probably could, could be, I mean, among other things, a cause for the market-wide circuit breakers obviously going off in the first couple of minutes within probably that same time frame that you did this analysis. Did you do this analysis beyond... I just I, I have a posting I think from Feb 11th through March 27th. Did you stop the analysis there, or has it persisted? I'm just curious. It started to trend back to being uh, even. I haven't posted any any results. My guess is it'll flip back to gains being during the day or overnight, yep. uh, given the market's recovered. But I haven't looked at it. That'd be interesting. Is there is there anything else that was very surprising to you during this COVID period? Well, I was, I was definitely very surprised by the regulatory response in many dimensions. And the Fed in particular experimented with a lot of lending facilities in ways that affected the psychology of markets, for instance, by saying they would buy corporate bonds and the corporate bond market recovered without them actually buying any corporate bonds. So it goes to show the power of a regulator's word and also trust in a regulator. If they say they're going to do something, the market believes it. I also found it surprising that regulators didn't allow more time for some of the market reforms put in after the last crisis to unfold. So I think there's going to be, you know, once COVID settles, the moral hazard issues to resolve. But, you know, money mm -hmm. markets is one area where, John, during your time at the SEC, even though you didn't really fully work right. on it, the Fed, you know, jumped in and, and didn't let any of the reform measures, you know, they didn't let them see if those reforms worked. And a lot of it had to do with the industry didn't want to test the reforms. They just wanted to bail out. And so, you know, that's, I think, going to pose a, an issue with money funds 
uh, their viability going forward. That, that is actually a really interesting point I hadn't thought about is I really haven't heard people raise the moral hazard kind of issue in connection with kind of the recent actions. And may, maybe it's because they were really just designed to be short-term actions and people assumed that they would, you know, sort of that need would be withdrawn quickly. I don't know, but it, it's not something you hear people talk about in, or I have in any way in connection with the current financial stresses. Yeah, I think more people, there's, there are bigger concerns to worry about today than that, but give it yeah. time. And there, you know, those who revise history will come back and uh, take away the laudatory praise they gave regulators and come back and said they made mistakes for the following reasons. Um, yeah. At least as of right now, we haven't reached that point. <laughs> right. So John and I were talking earlier about like uh, displayed liquidity, the drop in that, as well as increasing off exchange volume. John, did you want to ask? A question yeah, that? well, yeah. I mean, we so we've been focused a lot on a long-term decline in trading on exchange, displayed liquidity, sort of correlating with steady increase in off exchange volume, particularly internalized volume. And I guess during the COVID period, as you've had more and more retail participation, that portion of the trading that's accounted for by the internalized retail segment um, has gotten substantially higher. So it, it does raise the question about, it, is there a point at which the price discovery functions uh, function of the displayed markets becomes materially impaired? And are there ways to reverse that trend or at least push it a bit, a bit in the other direction. Do you have, have any thoughts about that? It's a great question because if you recall, you know, back in the mid 2000s when dark pools became popular, I mean, that's when this question really surfaced. And, yeah. you know, it's through a lot of beliefs and views at that time that ultimately weren't manifest. And I think there's a lot more volume on dark pools now than people thought would be plausible if you, you know, dial back 15 years. What the actual threshold is where it become problematic is, you know, somewhat challenging to answer. But, you know, an economist would say in general equilibrium, if that ever did occur, people would go back and arbitrage it by going to the lit market. But it's, it's incredibly difficult to measure those types of issues. It's the same problem a conundrum you have with index funds. You know, what problem, at what point does, you know, what threshold of indexing is it to create a problem for price discovery because people are buying whole investors regardless of you know, information produced. So I'm afraid I don't have an answer for that, but time will tell. Yeah. Well, you'll have an answer by the time you come on our next podcast and then we can, uh, <laughs> you'll, you'll have published a paper on that and we can ask you about it. What's that answer, I will, John? <laughs> <laughs> I will say some of the, the issues that may come out of this are more market stability issues uh, than price discovery issues with a lot of the internalization that occurs today and, when you do have a market disruption, like what happens to the internalization process, particularly with retail customers that may have a lot of stop loss orders, and you have these artificial momentum ignition episodes that occur through the internalization process that weren't originally contemplated. And there, there still sits out there uh, probably a 2007 or 2008 concept release issued by the Division of Trading Markets that talks about these stability issues that are yet to be resolved. Well, when you say momentum ignition, I have some sense about what that means, but you, can you explain to people how that happens and what, what the implications of that are? 
a lot of retail investors put in stop loss orders to protect the downside risk of their investments. They could argue whether or not that's important. <laughs> they should be doing that or not, but they do. Uh, they also tend to do that clustered around particular price points, even dollars or integer units are very popular. And there are a lot of traders out there that understand this. So when the price gets very close to one of those thresholds, they sometimes test it. They'll put in a large number of sell orders to see if they can't trigger a number of stop loss orders. And if there's a big bundle of stop loss orders, that might create more downward pressure that then gets to the next whole dollar and it cascades and you can create a mini flash crash. Oh, interesting. And then the traders that are igniting that movement then stand to sort of scoop the the stock up at the at the reduced price. That's right. If they're, if they're shorting the securities, they cover it, and uh, they make money on it. Interesting. You know, bringing an enforcement action against that, though, my understanding, I'm not an attorney, I don't pretend to be one, although I work with money for far too long, uh, is that... <laughs> hey, excuse me, I'm a lawyer, okay? Yeah. That's why I left. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> it's, uh, it's hard to bring an enforcement action because it's difficult to explain. These aren't risk-free transactions. People are taking on risk to do them. And so the predatory nature of them haven't been fully characterized in rulemaking, which is why the commission put out a release in 2007, 2008, with to collect information such that they might be able to develop policies to better articulate what's permissible. Interesting. Scott, I don't know if this question is pertinent to you or not, but um, as we talked, like I said, we met you through our academic research conference. I know John had known you in the past, but like a key, a key I, I guess I'll call it a complaint that we heard from many of the academics was access to data was difficult and expensive. And I was curious in, in your role in what you do from an economist standpoint, are you interacting with a lot of data? Is it uh, more theoretical or... and is data difficult to get the hands on your hands on from an academic standpoint? Yeah, from, uh, you know, I'm, I'm considered an empiricist, which is somebody who uses data. I okay. didn't have the intellectual chops to write theory, but I like <laughs> to test theory. And, and data is always a problem. In fact, the biggest criticism of academia is a lot of the research is stale and old or answering unimportant questions. And a lot of that has to do is that academic study what's available to them to study, and that's data and market structure. There's a lot of data that's not available to academics to study, and the best research, particularly in market structure, has come when an exchange or some other market provider has provided proprietary data to those academics to study. And the NASDAQ and NYC over the past have you know, entered some of those agreements. I know IEX is keen on working with academics, too. I'm a huge fan of doing that. Academics generally serve as a neutral, nonpartisan assessor of current issues, and giving them access to the information really helps us understand our knowledge of markets. Of course, the incentives aren't always aligned because those that have the data uh, often want a particular answer to prevail, and so there's a risk that a different result will be, be had, and so they're reluctant. If you ask a general counsel, they'll always say, don't share the data. No was always a better answer than maybe. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But if you're talking about historical data and even data that is, you know, not, not that old, but old enough that it can't be used for, for trading purposes, certainly making, making that more freely available to academics for research seems to make a ton of sense. And there's no clear reason that I can understand why exchanges wouldn't or shouldn't do that other than kind of for the reasons that you suggest or just that thought that they can make a little bit of money from it. 
All right, now for the real serious question, John. What's the serious question of the day? Serious question of the day. What color socks do you want? No, 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 that's not it. Uh, we are, we do give everybody socks, you know, who comes on the, the program. Although Lovely IEX socks. They're actually yeah. very good socks. Yeah, they are. They're, they're terrific talking socks. talking about socks this way, but it, yeah. they are good. Yeah. Also, what's your favorite Wall Street movie? Um, I'll probably have to go back in time. Danny DeVito and Other People's Money. Uh, oh, really wow. that's a good very one. good answer. Yeah. That's very creative. Wow. <laughs> that's a first. Yeah. That's a good movie too. I've actually I don't know shown... if I ever saw it. I'm gonna have to go back and see it now. Yeah, it was pre it was pre Wall Street. Uh -huh. It was the LBO era takeover and uh, the closing scene, the buggy whip scene is a classic and I often use it as a teaching instrument in class to explain to people about governance of companies and when a company should be wound down versus continuing social responsibility versus shareholder responsibility. Well, anyway, I don't know, John, do you have any other questions? Uh, Scott, I think really I, 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 none on. that I have, but it's been a much more, yeah, it's been, been a really good conversation, really interesting, more intellectual than some of our conversations, but that's probably not a heavy lift. Perhaps. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but no, we appreciate being on and we, 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 we'd love to have you on again and um, can only say thank you and good bless you. What does John always say? God bless, God bless you all. And <laughs> hook them horns. Like, what are you guys? Say, hook them horns. <laughs> yeah. Hook them horns. horns. All right. Thanks very much, Scott. We appreciate it, man. Thank you, Scott. Thanks. Over and out. and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational and educational purposes only. And IEX Group, Inc. and its affiliates do not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation or offer to buy or sell any securities or provide any investment advice or service. Some portions of the preceding conversations may have been edited for length or clarity. Copyright IEX Group, Inc. All rights reserved.